This episode is brought to you by Libro FM, the first and only company that lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Ours is the Reading Rock Books in Dixon, Tennessee. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a different story, one that supports the community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dogs, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, booksellers. The Good Old Days has a special offer for you. Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership using the code OLDDAYS, all one word, O-L-D-D-A-Y-S, Old Days. The offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S. Now on to our show. On the night of May 21st, 1938, a 21-year-old Japanese man named Mutsu Toi cut the power lines to a small village called Kamo near Suyama in south-central Japan. The small township of roughly 100 people plunged into complete darkness without any idea of what was coming. With a katana slung over his shoulder, an axe in one hand, and a loaded shotgun in the other, Mutsu made war against his neighbors' homes for an hour and a half, house by house, family by family, until he had slaughtered 27 people and left another three barely clinging to life. Lastly, as the sun came up, he killed himself. The letters he left behind detailed an angry, toxic mind, enraged by female sexual rejection after a terminal diagnosis of tuberculosis. It remains the single worst rampage killing in Japanese history. This is the story of the Tsuyama Massacre. And we are live. This is The Good Old Days, a podcast at the corner of history and true crime. I'm Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. And welcome back to another episode, another full-length episode. This is a doozy. And just a heads up, I mean, I don't know. Do you think we need to do any type of warning for this one? I mean, it's, there's not a lot of gore. it's got massacre in the title. It has massacre in the title. So if you can't discern whether or not you want to hear a story about a massacre despite that, I don't think I can help you. (laughs) We can put a warning on our post. Yeah, we'll just say... In case you didn't understand that this was about a massacre, it's about a massacre. <laughs> it's about a massacre. It's about a massacre. So there we go. All right. Yeah, problem right. solved. Buckle up. <laughs> Buckle up. It's it's a, a doozy. How did you, because you brought this one up, how, how did you find this? I was, let's see, how did I find this? I know I was Googling random things and I think I was looking for... Honestly, I think I was just looking for like historical crime and came across a list of massacres and this was on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly think it was a Wikipedia list and it was one of those things where it's like, oh, there isn't a whole ton of information on Wikipedia. Maybe this isn't a true story mm-hmm. or I need to 
research it a little bit more. And of course, we found a couple of different sources and discovered it's pretty messed up. Yeah, yeah. So because this this happened in the 1930s in Japan, most of the um, primary sources are in Japanese. So we had to consult only secondary sources. So just a disclaimer there. Uh, there's a great article on devastating disasters. There's also a great article that most of the pieces that I've heard other podcasts or most of the episodes, most of the other podcasts and like YouTubers who have covered this all reference this historycollection.com uh, article about the Suyama massacre. So we we plopped that on our source list as well. It was a really great source of information. Um, there was like a little blurb in the New York Times from 1938. And we'll put all of these sources on our website on the page for this episode. Musotoi was born in 1917 in a city called Suyama. And it's within the Okayama Prefecture, which I didn't know what a prefecture was. So I looked it up and it's sort of a state or a territory that's governed by a prefect. And it's located on Japan's Honshu Island. The second child of wealthy parents, or so every single article about this has said that they were wealthy, he and his older sister had to go live with their grandmother in a small rural village nearby called Kamo after tuberculosis killed both their mother and their father. Roughly 125 miles west of Kyoto, the small village only had a population of just over 100 people. So let's fast forward to 1938. So as a 21-year-old male, in a small village of fewer than 120 people, his opportunities were limited. The way I see it, he entertained three options for his future. He could marry a local girl and settle on land within the community. He could join the army and assume the glory of a soldier. Or he could write a novel and have a career as a writer. To, just to get the ball rolling, he started participating in a custom known as Yobai. All right, And for Westerners, this, this seems crazy. Like when I first read this, I messaged you immediately and was like, what the hell was this? But basically, it's the practice of young men coming into the rooms of young unmarried women at night and asking for sex. And well, they, yeah. the word itself translates roughly to night crawling. Which yes. Is, I don't know. Just doesn't doesn't elicit great visuals. Oh, no. And I just watched the Night Stalker. So I'm like drawing pair. You know, I, I cannot stop thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's it's a tough thing to kind of wrap our mind around. Um, I read a few different sources that explained that this was totally normal in Japanese culture at this time as a kind of workaround from the moral, I guess, the the morality that society was trying to place on people. So it, weird to us, I guess, kind of normal to them, but still. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I mean, it was basically just like it's courting practice. So a couple of things I read, like you would the, basically the young man would strip naked <laughs> and crawl into the house. And this was so the this is like a communal practice. So everyone knows this is going on, but the parents ignore it, basically, like they pretend like nothing's going on. But to ensure that they weren't getting robbed by somebody, you know, the guy had to strip naked. So it was pretty apparent what what he was there for. And the woman would either go, sure, let's do it, or absolutely not. Um, but you, they would meet like about four times, four or five times like this, and then it would, it would turn into a courtship and, and result in marriage. So that's like the end goal. Um, and so basically he starts to participate in this, and uh, 
he also starts trying to write a book about a, a woman named Abe Sada. And Jasmine, why don't you go ahead and tell us about Abe Sada and what, what she was all about? So this seems to be a better recorded incident as it as it becomes known, the Abe Sada incident. Basically, Abe Sada was a woman. She was a geisha. Some sources refer to her as a failed geisha. And she becomes a prostitute. And these two things are not the same. Maggie, you explained it a little bit better than I can. Um, what is the difference between a geisha and a prostitute? So a geisha is a very, the best way I can describe it is like a very um, high class companion. And there is a sexual, there can be a sexual element to it, but the geisha's primary purpose and function is as a companion. So they had to be incredibly educated and and know how to usually, you know, play an instrument, dance. They there was a, everything was ceremonial. Like there, there was a proper way to pour tea. There was a proper way, you know, the what we think of when we think of a geisha, the first thing that probably pops into your mind is the white makeup, right? And what where I think the lines get crossed is because after the Americans occupied Japan, there were women, common prostitutes, who would don the makeup and sell their services to men. And so forever in the Westerner's mind, if you see that white face makeup, that woman is a prostitute. But that is not not how that started. That was like more of like Western influence created that. Did that make sense? Or was that too long-winded? No, that's perfect. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So Sada Abe, who I'm just going to refer to as Abe, because that's how she refers to herself, has a particular lover named Kichizo Ishada, and she calls him Kichi. So that's what I'm going to refer to him as for the rest of this story. And apparently he's into erotic asphyxiation. So essentially where you cut off the oxygen supply to try and Induce an orgasm. Better, yeah. yeah, get a better sensation out of sexual undertaking. I love I how you're how tiptoeing really around this. <laughs> so basically, she would strangle him until he had an <laughs> orgasm, and they loved it. Yeah. Right? No kink shaming, right? There you go. Yeah, no kink shaming. I'm trying to put this in like a, <laughs> a very delicate, uh, way. academic way, and I don't think it's possible. But anyway, the sash from her kimono, she uses it to get a tighter grip around uh, Kichi's neck and that's at his request so this is all consent this is all consensual so far and as time goes on he wants the pressure ramped up and up so this particular evening in 1936 so about two years before Mutsu goes on his rampage um, they're participating in sexual activities including this asphyxiation they and they end up locking themselves in a hotel room for a week just drinking and playing sex games for a week a solid week i mean sounds like a good time <laughs> yeah i mean it's fine like it <laughs> sounds great <laughs> fine. like i'm all for that um maybe my family listens to this anyway um <laughs> Like, go them. Do what you want. Sure. Uh, but it obviously gets to a point where it's becoming dangerous. This particular session, if we want to call it that, um, she wraps 
the sash so tightly around his neck that he is in physical pain after the fact. So he took a bunch of sedatives to help him fall asleep and to help alleviate his pain. And before he fell asleep, he made comments to Abe that she should strangle him again in his sleep and make it hurt. And later she would say she didn't know if he was joking or not, but she agrees to do it. She gets up in the early hours of the morning. She takes her sash and again wraps it twice around his neck and pulls it until the life literally drains out of him and he's dead. So she pulls it and holds it. And if you're like us and watch a lot of true crime documentaries, you know, that takes a good few minutes to yeah. do. Yeah. So like this at least five. Yeah. This is very intentional at this point. Then she decides to lie next to him for several hours. And I don't know why she does this. There's no real report on it. I guess she's trying to figure out what to do, maybe. Uh, but also she is lying next to a dead body. So after lying next to him for a few hours, I suppose contemplating what she did, she goes and gets a sharp kitchen knife to take a sinister souvenir of his man bits. She cuts them all off and yeah, I, yeah, she cuts them all off. And puts them in her pocket. She, then, she, she does. She literally puts them in her kimono. She then carves her name into his arm and writes in blood, quote, we Sada and Kichiyashada are alone, end quote, in blood on his leg before she put on his underwear and took, again, the pieces that she cut off of him, tucked it in her kimono and left. Wow. Okay. I do have a question, though. Did she put his underwear on her or put his underwear back on him? She put her underwear on herself. She put his she put underwear, underwear on her. Yes. Okay. Which I don't know why she did that. She never explained why she did that. Well, we I go. think she she did it because she felt like she was taking the best piece of him because he was supposed to be this amazing lover. Mm-hmm. Although when she's asked about that later, because there was this big rumor going around that he was like huge and all of these different things came up and she's like no you know size doesn't really matter (laughs) like oh add insult to injury yeah yeah Um, but she did manage to avoid the authorities for quite a while before they captured her and she made that lovely statement anyway based on this whole story Mutsutoe decides to like you said write a romance novel uh, but he never finishes this book. But so, but this is what he's obsessed with. This is what he's he's thinking about, right? Um, and basically, he's writing about sexual eroticism by day. He's experimenting sexually with village girls by night, and he soon developed a reputation for being oversexed. Uh, and despite this, he probably thought things were looking up for a little while, uh, but everything was about to crumble in quick succession. He tried and failed to publish this story, uh, which didn't happen. So that's strike one. And presumably after that, he started to get sick, which prompted him to see a doctor who then told him that he had tuberculosis, which was a death sentence. It had killed both of his parents. 
So word of his diagnosis spread quickly throughout the village, and soon girls were refusing to let him into their beds, and they were no longer entertaining Yobai with Mutso. This effectively eliminated any possibility for marriage. Okay, so another strike two. And I read somewhere in one of those sources that it wasn't all of the women. So there were still women sleeping with him, just not all of the women he had been entertaining or had been entertaining him. So I had a thought. So Yobai's ultimate purpose is to facilitate marriage, correct? Like that's the end Mm -hmm. goal, okay? How many tries do you think he gets before people get wise to the fact that he's just looking for sex? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it was a pretty quick thing. It wasn't like a prolonged experience. You did this a handful of times. To find your spouse. Yeah. And then you should start on something more serious. Well, I mean, so if he got a reputation for hypersexuality, the girls may have just realized that further yobaing with Matsu might get in the way of a formal, you know, might get in the way of forming real attachments with boys who actually want, you know, wanted to marry them. And maybe his real disease in their eyes was lust, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. The army, of course, would refuse his entry now because he had an infectious disease and he didn't even have a friend to lean on. It said his his older sister that he loved her and and she was, you know, his his main companion. She got married like two, three years before this and left because she married a man that was outside of Suyama. And so he was left to care for his aging grandmother. And basically... His reputation for being hypersexual, the terminal illness that killed both of his parents, like he had he had nothing like he just and he's a he's an ultra nationalist, too. So he literally can't do anything. He feels wronged. He feels like, you know, like what an unfair situation and decides that he's going to get his revenge. I mean, he basically conducts like a mini I mean, like a mini rape of Nanjing, basically. I mean, I don't know if he was sexually assaulting any of these women, but I find parallels between that incident just completely slaughtering everybody and this. Well, and there was whether on that night he committed any sexual assault or not, there was a sexual element to this. Yes, there absolutely was. All of what's going on in Butso Toy's life is culminating to... Uh, make him more and more miserable, at least in his own head. And he starts writing different letters and supposed suicide notes about how miserable he is, about how women are rejecting him, about how the village is shunning him. And for some reason, he decides to share this with some members of the village, some of his neighbors. And of course, they're going to be like, ah, problem. This isn't really right. <laughs> yeah, like this is a little problematic. Maybe we should get someone involved. So they call the police and the police show up and they take all of his stockpiled weapons and revoke his gun license. What a novel idea. Um, <laughs> but yeah, in Japan, you have to have a license in order to have a gun. So they take that away. They take away any weapons from his house, at least. And um, he gets really mad about this because the only way the police would have known to show up is if someone that he was talking to called them. Yeah. Well, they were getting nervous. They were like, his behavior is peculiar. Please come do something about this. 
And that's all they do. They could have arrested him, which they don't do. They could have come and done further checks, which they also don't do. So there is a little bit of police failure in this story as well. And pretty soon after this, he somehow manages to get his hand on get his hands on a shotgun, a katana, and an axe, even though he's not supposed to have them. So again, if they had come and done a checkup at a later point, they would have discovered these weapons in his possession in, in all likelihood. Okay, so we're, we've, we've arrived on the evening that this massacre occurs. So Jasmine, describe what happens on the night of May 21st, 1938. So. He's stockpiled his weapons. He's now fully mad at the whole neighborhood, thinks he doesn't have a friend in the world. His sister's gone. He's upset. And he takes his weapons in the very early hours of May 21st, and he goes to cut the power lines. So there is no lights, nothing going on in this small little village. Hold on. Quick, quick question. Do you think there's anybody who's listening who doesn't know what a katana is? Oh, maybe. If you don't know what a katana is, it's a long, very sharp Japanese sword. Go watch Kill Bill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like Quentin Tarantino should make a movie about this. I mean, it's right up his alley. Yeah. He could make it so bloody. That's the power lines. He goes to his grandma's house and she will be his first victim. Well, they live together. He lives with his grandmother. Oh, does she still live at home? Okay. Yeah. So after cutting the power lines, he goes back home to uh, kill his grandma. She's going to be his first victim because one of his suicide notes had stated that he wanted to spare her from the shame of what he was about to do. Although I don't really buy this because this is an incredibly brutal murder. He takes the axe he has with him and uses it to essentially decapitate her. Which if he wanted a quick and painless death, I don't think that's the way forward. No, I mean, definitely not. Decapitating your 77-year-old grandmother with an axe is, uh, is definitely a brutal, brutal death. So that's that's his word. That's so awful. I just can't. I just can't even like this woman raised him. But then again, I I think there's more to it that we just don't understand, you know, about his warped way of thinking. I think there was a manner of what was driving him was he's trying to reclaim his honor, but knew that his grandmother would be shunned by everybody if she were the, the grandmother of a murderer. So in a weird way, he thought that he was honoring her. I don't know. Possibly. But in, okay, so say that that is what his line of thinking is. Wouldn't the katana have been a better weapon? Oh, 100%. So after he's committed this first murder, he decides to, he decides to use the principles and knowledge of Yobai. So he targets specifically women who have turned him down in recent days, weeks, and months. And he knows they're going to be asleep. He knows their windows are going to be open. He knows how to navigate their homes. And he goes essentially house to house, entering those windows that are open, killing anyone that he could. Mm-hmm. And we don't get any more details of those deaths, of what, you know, what's happening there. But you can just imagine it's it's a it's a bloodbath. It's not a pretty sight. It's 
tragic and awful. And when he's all done with this, 27 people are dead. Two are fatally wounded and would die later. And three are seriously injured. So altogether about half the village. So I have, I do have a question about that because I saw an estimate of the village had a population of about 120 people and 30 deaths would not have been half that. So I feel like some people try to like inflate it a little bit, at least. I don't know. But um, I've also read it was 29 victims, 29 dead. Then it was 30 dead with three wounded. I've seen a little bit of variance on these on these numbers. So just a heads up there, you know. Okay, yeah, because I saw the population number I read, I think, was 67 people. But. Again, I don't, I don't know. According to the correct. 2019 census there, there are 41 people living in the village mm-hmm. now. So maybe whoever wrote that based it on the current census record at the time that they wrote that rather than what was going on maybe. in 1930. Perhaps that is a good that, that's a maybe. Yeah. It's hard to know because, again, we're not reading this in its native language. Right. So when that's all done, he's not going to wait for the police to show up and cart him off. He waits for the sun to rise. So this is a few hours later. All in all, his whole rampage takes about an hour and a half. Um, And then he waits. I don't know how long. We don't have a good estimate of this. Well, apparently, apparently the whole thing started around 1.30. He started killing people around 1.30. Took about an hour and a half. So he would have been just putzing around for you know starting at three o'clock in the morning until the sun came up and so it's like probably three hours of just contemplation waiting for the sun to come up and i want to know if there was some symbolism in waiting for the sun to hit his face before he did it i think there must have been there must have been something to that because he was so deliberate in how he's doing everything i i don't think it was by chance i don't think he was waiting to be caught i don't think there was a waiting for anything other than the symbolism of the sun rising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he obviously he killed a lot of people in the village, but not all of the people in the village. And I mean, this was this was incredibly calculated. It was it was months of planning went into this. So, you know, I mean, I think there's something that we don't know. I think there's stuff that we can't understand just from a cultural perspective. Um, But very interesting, for sure, that he waited until the sun came up and then took his own life. I don't know. Very sad. Very sad story. And such an unnecessary loss of life. I mean, any any massacre is an unnecessary loss of life. But um, there was definitely some warped thinking going on in this young man's mind. And I think once he got that that death sentence that he has tuberculosis, his his parents both died from it i think he just said you know what i i there's no way forward for me and i have to do something at least i i I think a lot of a lot of times when people commit crimes like this it's like they're going to be remembered for one thing in their life and it might be the way that they went out you know so it's it's all i think there's definitely a, a form of narcissism there as well lots of psychological things that we couldn't hope to understand just because we don't have that kind of information on this guy. Yeah. Um, well, narcissism, toxic masculinity, there's an element of isolation after his sister leaves. And then the 
idea of terminal illness and what that does. So lots of elements go into this. Yeah, exactly. Well, anything else? I mean, I read that the town, like the people who were left over pretty much left as you would Mm -hmm. after this happened. Um, And that's about it. There is no real follow up. Um, I couldn't find any information past that. And so that's the end of our story. Yeah. Well, folks, if you enjoyed this episode, we want you to head to your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a review. Jasmine, where can they find us on social media? So on Twitter, we are The Good OD Pod. And on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, we're The Good Old Days Pod. All right. Well, thank you all so much for tuning in. We hope you have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Bye.